Welcome to the 45th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. I'm Katie Rainey, filling in for Brian Birnbaum while he's taking some time off. This is our first episode of 2020, and I am so happy to have with me here today one of the biggest advocates for the literary community, Andrew Lloyd-Jones. Andrew has spent more than 15 years in the marketing and advertising industry and was was a creative partner at the occasionally infamous HHCL and Partners in London. Curious about that. Today, he specializes in copywriting, branding, and creative direction for global clients and local brands alike. His services include advertising copy, web content, and brand messaging, to name a few. But most importantly, Andrew is an award-winning short story writer and won the Fish International Short Story Prize, which is a pretty huge deal. I've entered that competition several times and never won. With his story, Feathers and Cigarettes, recently adapted for film, I have so many questions. His fiction has been featured in Blue Lake Review, Pop Shot Quarterly, The London Reader, Northern Colorado Writers Pooled Ink Anthology, and the Canongate Collection, Original Sins, among others. He's the founder, producer, and host of the regular live fiction reading series and podcast, Liars League NYC in New York. Hi, Andrew. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> Does that make you really uncomfortable to hear all that? Unbelievably uncomfortable. Ordinarily, yeah. I'm introducing other people and uh, at Liars League. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. So thanks very much. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I promise I won't. I'll, make, I'll try to make this as painless as possible. Uh, you I don't appreciate like, it. You don't like talking about yourself. We just learned that. I, well, I've just learned that, to be honest with you. I never thought that I didn't like talking about myself. But yeah. um, apparently I do, don't. So, yeah. Yeah. This might be a very short interview. Okay, well, we'll <laughs> see. Well, you can just make it more of a conversation. Great. We'll try. But I do want to learn more about you. Sure. Originally, you are from London. That's correct. Yes, I was born in London. And and you lived in Alaska for a while. You moved to Alaska from London. That's correct. When I was very young, yeah, my parents shipped us all out to the states. So without um, them, no. What? Oh, they. You said they shipped you. Like, no, they, they didn't ship they me. Yeah, you. they hated me so much. I was some like changeling baby. No, no, they no. We all moved out. They shipped us all out to with them to the states. So yeah. So I we were in California for a brief time, and then Alaska. Were they in the military um, or something, or just for work? No, worse than that, it's oil. So, oh. uh, yeah, so, what, so uh, BP. Okay, all right. BP, yeah. What did they do for BP? No, um, well, it wasn't they, it was my dad. He was in human resources yeah. personnel, yeah. So. Wow, that's a big move for... Yeah, well, I guess they had sort of, they just discovered oil in the North Slope of Alaska, and which at the time was very exciting, and now it's absolutely sort of catastrophic for the environment. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, so my dad spent a lot of time in the Arctic, I think, at, on oil rigs and things like that, sort of interviewing people for jobs. So when did you come to New York? I moved here just about 11 years ago now. Okay. Yeah, so I'd been living in London prior to that. What what did, made you move to New York? It's a good question. I'd fallen in love with New York some time before that, and I used to have friends here, and I would come over once or twice a year just mm-hmm. hang out for you know a week at a time and I was particularly enamored of Halloween oh yeah yeah it's I mean Halloween doesn't really exist in the UK and, and maybe this is because I grew up in the states when I was younger and I left the states when I was 10 years old so I was what in fourth grade or something like that and Halloween's obviously big business if you're you know 10 mm-hmm. that's kind of you know you look forward to that as much as you do Christmas and so I used to love Halloween and then I came to England and it just doesn't exist yeah you know there's some sort of quaint notion of 
bobbing for apples that happens or something like that. Yeah, that's about it. And that breaks my heart a little bit. I know. Yeah, it is heartbreaking. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. That's probably the most American thing I'll say all day. Like, you don't have Halloween. God. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when I came to New York, and it just, I think for the first time, which as, a, as an adult, which is sort of like in the early 2000s or something like that, mm-hmm. I uh, coincidentally happened to be here at Halloween. And I was just blown away at the, the I guess, the sort of childlike enthusiasm people have for it here. Mm-hmm. And it, genuinely does seem to be a creative outlet for anyone you know Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you're in the arts or if you're working on wall street or Mm -hmm. you know if it doesn't matter you know everyone embraces the sort of the chaos and the creativity of it all and and their sort of inner child and and yes there's sort of slutty nurses and (laughs) you know things like that but i think it's all part of the fun of it you know you're allowed to kind of dress up however you like and nobody really Nobody's shaming anyone. No one's judging yeah. anyone for being anything at Halloween. It's just this kind of fantastic holiday that, that incidentally also, you know, it just involves your friends. You know, you don't mm-hmm. get together with family for Halloween, you know, so it's very much a sort of friend type occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, Thanksgiving is for family and, and then Christmas, if you celebrate it, is for, you know, family plus, plus presents and things like that. And, uh, but Halloween is just friends and drinking, yeah. you know, so, yeah. So anyway, so I was here for that Halloween, but I, I just loved, I love New York and uh, as the, as the catchphrase goes and, you know, it felt more and more like home. And then one Halloween, in fact, while I was here, I met a girl at a party and she and I got involved uh, in a long distance relationship and I moved over. So a year later. All right. So, yeah. Well, so we met, when was that? Like a couple years ago? Did we meet the first time question. at your house? Was that the first time? It might have been at my house. It you, might have been. You threw a party for reading series curators. And I think that was the first time we met. I just showed up with, I think you had invited like Devin, yeah. my co-host. You didn't come to the one on the roof? No, I was there on the one on the roof. That's when I first met like Tobias and Dolan Morgan. And I think that's, I mean, it was your house. I think that was yeah. the first time I met you. Okay. I think I've had a couple of reading series parties. Yeah, that was that was a sort of a party that, and that wasn't my idea, that first party, the one on the roof. That mm-hmm. was Nancy Hightower, who is my collaborator at Liars League a couple of years ago. She had this great idea of, you know, trying mm-hmm. to bring together, you know, everyone. This is before the reading series of New York group existed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wanting to kind of cross-pollinate, collaborate with yeah. other reading series, which now seems like a no-brainer. And yeah. now that the reading series of New York group exists, it just seems obvious, like, why weren't we doing this before? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there are so many reading series out there and groups that, you know, can benefit from each other's experience and, and yeah. contacts or whatever it might be. And in fact, that's why I'm sitting here right now. Yeah, I know, because so. we met. And that, yeah, even that first party, I met so many great people and had, I mean, that's just how we became friends with like Tobias and all of them. And I think like Natalie Eilbert was there and several other people. Right. And it was really great. But then we didn't really have a lot of contact until the whole reading for races thing happened. And mm-hmm. so like just I don't know how if we've <clears throat> talked about that before on this podcast, but maybe we have like a few years ago, a bunch of curators just got together, like you said, and said, like, why aren't we doing more things? And so we decided to fundraise together for Races, I can't ever. Races. I can't. Yeah. I can't remember. Races. Yeah. I'm from the south, you know, which helps families and children who are detained at the border. 
And so we fundraised across, and that was really excellent. You hosted the closing celebration, which was kind of when we all decided to like form this more like formal community of curators who are working together. It's been really lovely so far. Yeah, no, it's been great. And I know there's been a lot of enthusiasm. And I think the I'm an admin on the Facebook group, I think. Mm-hmm. And I'm always amazed that there are sort of several, it seems there are several requests every week from yeah. other people from reading series that I've never heard of yeah. to join the the group. And which is awesome. I mean, there the fact that there's so much out there. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, I mean, that's something, that's certainly something that I... I mean, it wasn't a reason for my moving to New York, but when I eventually got involved with the, the literary community, having moved to New York, I was amazed at how many reading series exist mm-hmm. here. And, you know, whether it's for fiction or poetry yeah. or, you know, drama or whatever it might be, there isn't a fraction of that amount of mm-hmm. organization in London, which is bizarre. Yeah. You'd think, you know, London, literary city, you know, kind of long literary pedigree, but... Yeah, I think we're just massively antisocial in London. We just don't trust each other. I'm curious about, like, I guess, like, yeah, we're, there's tons of people here and there's just easy access to, like, each other and and meeting in public and that kind of thing. Because there's really not, like, reading series communities elsewhere. Like, I'll go to, like, we just started a salon in Little Rock, which there's nothing else. You know, out in California, there's, like, a couple in L.A., but they're sporadic. And they're mostly, like, the ones we've heard from are started by people who, like, came from the East Coast, like New York. Like, Ryan Sartor is out there doing the Difficult to Name series that he took from New York out there. Right. So things like that. I guess I'm wondering just, I don't know. This is such, like, a home for the reading series community. It's great. Very much so. Yeah, like you, I know of very few other places in the world. I I think Portland has, you know, a few literary kind of Mm -hmm. events happening at any one time. And San Francisco has Litquake, and I think they are connected with a lot of literary organizations. But, you know, the sheer number every week, yeah. you know, every night, in fact, there's some literary event going on, and which can be incredibly depressing when you're trying to program your own <laughs> events. I'm sure you've <laughs> clashed with other literary events. Yeah, every Dead time. Rabbits. Yeah. And, you know, I'm always conscious when, you know, there's only a, a relatively small audience for Liars League, you know, that something else is happening mm-hmm. somewhere that's kind of dragging people away, So, which is amazing it's great for everyone and it does cause log jams though when you have things like the brooklyn book festival Mm -hmm. happening and yeah when everyone's trying to hold events on the same night and things like that so it's a it's a nice problem to have yeah so speaking of liars league let's talk about that where does the name come from how did it start so the name comes from the name was originally i think it was a guy called tim aldrich's name he came up with it and he had been chatting with another friend of mine uh, katie darby who's a writer who i actually met by the fish prize and she oh, okay. she came in she was one of the runners up and so she and i met in uh, ireland when we were there for the big award ceremony oh great so they had come up with this this kind of vague concept and this name, Liars League, for a reading series that just had actors and writers. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that actors would read the work with writers had submitted. So they then approached me, another writer called Tom McKay, and uh, I think he was more of an actor, actually, Tom, and Michael Keynes, who at the time was at the uh, Times Literary Supplement. And the the six of us got together. We became the original Liars League. And we took submissions. We had 
auditions for actors to read and and we held our first uh, Liars League I think it was in a pub the top room above a pub on Lamb's Conduit Street in London. I think it was called The Wheat Chief. Yeah, and, you know, it proved incredibly mm-hmm. successful. I think one of the reasons for that, A, was that, I mean, it's, I still think it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, there aren't, as I said, as many literary events happening mm-hmm. in London as there are here. So we were run a, one of, I don't know, half a dozen reading series in mm-hmm. London. I might be completely wrong about that, and that certainly might have changed now. Mm-hmm. But back then, yeah, it was a not a crowded field. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it gives it a level of sophistication having actors read writers' work. Is that kind of what the, the thought was behind that? Yeah, I think the thought was twofold. I mean, I don't know if there was we were as judgmental as, you know, wanting readings to be, you know, sophisticated mm-hmm. or anything like that. I think it was more a sense that, you know, writers write. I mean, I came up with that strap line originally, writers write, actors act, uh, audience listens, everybody wins, which I still use here in New York. And because that really sums it up, you know, and uh, writers are good at writing. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have to be good at reading their work. Mm -hmm. And uh, not all writers like doing that. And, you know, I think we've all been to readings where you know some writers got up and mm. you know mumbled into the mic and yeah. it's just been you know atrocious and it's got nothing to do with the writing mm. and no, so it's a completely different skill right completely and so the idea was really to level the playing field yeah you know and actors are good at reading and writers are good at writing so let's everyone play to their strengths so that was the the idea behind it and it was only years later when I came to New York and I set it up here. It took me a while to set it up here, actually, because I was so intimidated by all the kind of literary events happening. Mm-hmm. And I just thought people started talking to me about monetization and things like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, so it, it felt immediately like a more professional pursuit in the States. And so when we set it up here and at the time that was, again, there was a kind of a collection of us kind of got together mm-hmm. uh, to, to set up Players League. Uh, primarily with an actor, a director, a friend of mine, Elizabeth, who's the artistic director. And she was really in charge of, you know, finding the actors and mm-hmm. sort of running the, the rehearsals and, and all of that. And she's been fantastic at that. Yeah, no, it, it, it felt like a more intimidating prospect, yeah. setting up a, you know, a reading series in New York. Where do you f- find these actors that's what I'm curious about. I again, that, well, see, that wasn't my area of expertise. So yeah. uh, that was Elizabeth Alice Murray, who was the artistic director, and you know, she, being an actor and coming from that community, knew of a lot of actors. And you know, actors—it sounds ridiculous—but actors love acting. Yeah. And you know, it's an amazing thing where you can you can talk to actors, and they are absolutely willing to come along and record a story written mm. by somebody else and have the opportunity to really bring that to it, life in front of an audience. It's what yeah. actors love doing. And and I've always been amazed at, you know, how willing people are to, to kind of get involved, and uh, which has been great. I guess that's like a credential for writing too, right? Like they, like submitting your work and getting it read aloud is, mm. is a credit to your name and then also performing someone else's work. I mean, and then getting it recorded on a podcast, you can use that for your career, your reel to share your talent. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there have been lots of reasons why I think it, it's worked as a concept. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's partly because, you know, we function as a, a journal mm-hmm. as well. We publish online. And in addition to having the, the recordings, which are on their website, and then their podcast as well. Who's doing all this um, work? So, well, it's a kind of a joint effort more mm-hmm. than anything else, I think. So it really just depends on who's doing what. Some Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's someone else. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, there's sort of a lot of work that goes into it. So it's a live journal yeah. and a podcast as well as a, a live reading. Or it's a journal and a podcast as well as a That's live That's right, reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in fact, I mean, the, the journal aspect of it, I think, is, you know, has been fascinating for me. I mean, I, it, it wasn't something... Again, until I moved to New York, mm-hmm. London doesn't have the, the same kind of MFA culture mm-hmm. that New York does, where uh, you've got a lot of writing, you know, former MFA students and who are all writing short stories mm-hmm. and pitching short stories and submitting short stories to yeah. journals. So, you know, we're essentially in competition, you mm. know, for everyone else and uh, along with everyone else. And, you know, and I think that there is a, a sort of a hierarchy of publication, you know, that starts with your own blog yeah and you know ends with the new yorker or well you could argue i don't know where it ends but you know some people might say it ends somewhere a bit more i don't know actually where would you say that hierarchy ends oh i mean you know probably that oprah book sticker Mm. book club sticker you know getting that big fat paycheck really an anthology (laughs) i don't know if it's a place with your name on it with the oprah book club on it yeah Yeah, you know just something that sells copies so i guess for me like publishing a novel but like also selling those novels as far as as far as the you know submitting short stories go Uh, where does the what's what's the the top top yeah i guess the new yorker the atlantic the atlantic new yorker But then there are sort of Paris Review. I don't know. There are sort of other sort of underneath it that follow hard, you know, Mm -hmm. hard after. And but uh, so, yeah. And so I became aware that there was this this hierarchy existed and we were somewhere on it. Mm -hmm. And to a certain extent, as a publisher, I don't know if you find this as well, because you you publish short stories, too. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, you're constantly looking to effectively move up the Mm -hmm. rankings, you know, move up and. So I'm always delighted when we someone submits a short story to us mm-hmm. that I think, wow, this could get published in somewhere higher Do up. Do you tell them that? They think, no, God, no, absolutely <laughs> not. No, you wouldn't want to say that. But um, yeah, you know, I, I kind of, yeah, I find that that um, that's that's what you're really looking for. You know, you're looking for that as a, you know, speaking as yeah. an editor. I know, I ask because I know a small press publisher who you probably know as well who has received books before that mm. he felt were way above his press and could be published bigger, and he tells them that. Really? And so Brian and I, as n- new publishers, have had that debate in which my thought was like, maybe it's a conversation. Brian's like, no. He said the same reaction that you did. No, we publish it. No, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think, it's yeah, you're right. You, you yeah, ethical. It's an ethical dilemma to a certain extent. I ethical, mean, a moral dilemma. Sort of, not really. Not but really. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it is. But I, yeah. I mean, I think that's what everyone does. And because there's also the question of like the landscape. Like even if you think it should be published somewhere else, it may not. You know. This is it. Yeah. That it may all not comes happen. Down to your your own tastes, right? Yeah. And you know, I I don't know if there's a sort of 
But I think we all know, really, when, you know, you receive a short story, you know, kind of, yeah, to a certain extent, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. But there are, like, say, take the Pushcart Prizes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you flick through their anthology, there's a certain standard that you become used to. And you yeah. think, like, okay, this is where, you know, you need to be hitting if you want to be published in Tin House or... Mm-hmm. RIP or you know somewhere of, of that caliber and yeah so when you sort of receive a short story and you know one hopes that you know one is writing that type of you know quality mm-hmm. as well and I mean I guess that's that's interesting as well because you always think like yes this could be published in the New Yorker that this story that I've just written and then you you know it's only when you get 50 rejections back that you realize well maybe not <laughs> maybe I'll pitch it at my mate's blog instead maybe I'm that at that point on the hierarchy that's number two on the hierarchy number one is your own blog and yeah. it's your mate's blog you know so yeah anywhere above number two is good yeah so. well so you guys are at KGB bar we are at KGB Bar. Did it start yeah. at KGB Bar in New York? We did. We were really lucky. Um, yeah. One of the sort of Liars League New York founders, her name is Lila Cecil. She uh, was one of also one of the co-founders of the reading uh, space Paragraph. Um, oh, yes. So Paragraph. Uh, We've had we... them on this podcast. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. You had Joy on? I had Joy on. Oh, yeah. Joy's lovely. So yeah, Paragraph have had a reading series at KGB for years, I think ever since they set up. And... So Lila was kind enough to introduce me to the owner of KGB, who gave Liars League a home, and you know, and we've been there ever since. Yeah, you know, and enjoyed their kind of crumbling architecture <laughs> and their terrible lighting and sound system and everything like that. But it's a, it's a fantastic kind of literary space, yeah. and in New York, and it it has that sort of sense of history. And whenever. I, we tell anyone that we're at KGB, everyone kind of goes like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, yeah, it is. So. For those folks listening who are not in New York, it's definitely the most, I think, now the longest running kind of literary space, I feel like. Yeah, probably. I mean, I think, I mean, there are spaces like Housing Works. I yeah. put in that kind but of... But KGB literally is just a bar that has literary events every night you know yeah kgb i think has succeeded as a literary venue despite so many things that should make it not a literary venue like you know just really you know whether it's if you want to go somewhere or you know you're disliked by the bartender i was about to say cantankerous bartenders not go to kgb on i've got to say not on wednesdays when we have dan and seiji behind the bar who are fantastic. Yeah. They're great. Gotta go on Wednesday. But I've heard, you know, some people think some of the bartenders <laughs> in KGB can be can you know. be surly. But but no, Dennis Dennis Wojciak, who owns the entire building, the establishment, because it's also the mm-hmm. Red Room above and the Crane Theatre below. And yeah. I think there's a comedy theatre below a mm-hmm. comedy venue below that. He's great and he's a real sort of a genuine sort of old school patron of the arts I think and he's a writer himself he writes plays and you know he I think he does it genuinely does it out of you know a sense of love for the literary community and you know it's it's genuinely a a kind of an honor to be Mm -hmm. kind of housed there and yeah I feel really lucky that that we've had that connection well how do you so the actors and actresses that perform Mm -hmm. How do you pair them with the writers? How do you figure that out? What's the process like? 
I think over the years, I mean, we have a company of actors who we use. And, you know, people drop in and out of that company depending on, you know, where they are in the world or whether they're working mm-hmm. on stage at any one time and whatever it might be. But we certainly have regular actors that we use for certain types of story. Yeah. And I think that whenever we read a story, we you know, have have certain actors in mind, you know, for a certain type of mood or, mm-hmm. or kind of tone. And again, over the years, it's become fairly you know, it's become a fairly easy thing to kind of see, like, okay, that would be perfect for Matt, or that would be, you know, perfect for mm-hmm. Alice or whoever it might be to read. And, you know, so that kind of shortcuts the process. There are times where, you know, we, res- you know, have a, a submission that we're excited about, and, you know, we have to kind of think, we don't know, you know, exactly who the right kind of actor would be to read mm-hmm. it. But all of the actors we work with, you know, have had professional training, they're all great at what they do yeah and you know it's rare that i think we've cast an actor and it's not been right yeah i think that pretty much every time we nail it sometimes i mean i think sometimes more so than others you know i know that we've had we've had actors on more than one occasion who have continued a relationship with a a writer afterwards oh that's Um, great yeah and i think recently olivia killingsworth one of our actors uh read a story by a writer whose name i've now completely blanked on i'm really sorry and i apologize to that writer (laughs) but she read this piece and she and the actor got together and actually turned it into a, a short film wow um and and subsequently we've used elizabeth for one of her other sort of pieces of writing as well that she submitted um uh, the following year so so sometimes it you know there's just this incredible mm-hmm. magical kind of connection that happens and you know i i would never really want to kind of you know list my top 10 recordings that we've done but you know i certainly have some favorites in my head so what about submissions are you well first you guys are monthly is that right every other month every other month and so is it just open submissions no no we we have themes and it's something that we set up in london Mm -hmm. originally the theme is always kind of has a there are two words with a an ampersand in between the two Mm -hmm. and that ampersand is part of our logo as well so our most recent theme was intimacy and isolation Mm -hmm. and so yeah so every other month there's a new theme and we generally announce those themes at the end of the year we do have we i was going to announce our themes for next year here right now but which is clearly the most exciting thing to happen to the (laughs) podcast ever but we haven't agreed those themes yet so i can't do that fair enough but yeah they'll be announced very soon in the in the new year and that'll be in february right no our next event is in february which is intimacy and isolation Mm -hmm. in fact and so the next submissions theme deadline will be around the end of february for an event in april okay in fact so yeah so where can people go to find out more about submissions? They can go to our website at liarsleaguenyc.com. Okay. And yeah, this, all of our submissions guidelines are there together with, you know, a few details about what we like and what we don't like. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a cliche, but it really is the case that to get an idea of what we like, you know, read, yeah. read what we've published in the past. Yeah. And we have a full archive of all our stories, both in terms of text and recordings on mm-hmm. our website. 
that anyone can listen to for free at any time. And yeah, we we tend to kind of feature kind of character-driven stories that have a sense of an ending. And I, that it sounds really obvious to say, but you know, we I think probably along with a lot of journals mm-hmm. and publications, you know, we receive a lot of short stories which start out with some fantastic idea or conceit, but then sort of just trail off fizzle and out, yeah. fizzle out or just don't end. And it's sort of a snapshot, but without a yeah. story, a sense of story. And, um, you know, there's a difference. I think there's also, in addition, you know, I, I, every journal to a certain extent has a house style mm-hmm. and that's based on the the tastes of the editors, I think, to a certain extent. But for Liars League, and this would apply to Liars League in London as well as New York and in Portland and Hong Kong, where we also have a presence. You know, we certain stories work well when, when read aloud mm-hmm. and certain stories don't. So a story, ironically, that is, you know, that would seem like it's made for an actor, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes just doesn't, that involves a lot of dialogue, yeah. sometimes just does not work mm-hmm. when it's read out aloud. Um, yeah, I tell people the same thing, like when they're uh, submitting to read, they'll act like we get a lot of emails. It's like, what are you looking for or whatever? And we're pretty open, you know, mm. but because we're just a reading series. But what I always tell them is I'm like, you're going to get eight to 10 minutes to read. Right. The best things to read are something that's kind of like a complete story that will get people in, you know, not something that you have to have a lot of context to like drop them into it because people are listening and sometimes people aren't the best listeners, right. you know, too. So, yeah, so that's something with a complete ending. I definitely agree with. Well, so we talked a lot about Liars League and it's so wrapped up with your literary career, but I do want to shift paces a little bit and sure. and talk about your, you as a writer. So when did your kind of literary career, when did you start writing? I started writing, I think, I'd say relatively late in as much as I didn't do, I didn't really write at university mm-hmm. or, I mean, I, you know, dabbled in bits and pieces I think as anyone I read English literature at university mm-hmm. and and as a degree and but here uh, yeah but I, I you know I wasn't massively involved as a creative mm-hmm. writer at that point and it was only I think when I was working for an advertising agency in London which is what I did for a long long time I found myself in my spare time at the agency kind of writing short stories mm-hmm. and I think it probably started when I got really into Raymond Carver. And I think there was something about his writing that made the process seem incredibly accessible. Yeah. And, you know, and deceptively so in the case of Raymond Carver, as, you know, I'm sure everyone knows, you know, everyone tries to write like Raymond Carver. But, but that's you know, the word I'd use to describe him, too, as his writing is accessible. It is. Yeah. And, you know, and, and maybe that's a good thing for a lot of writers mm-hmm. because it kind of you know, strips away some of the mm-hmm. intimidating aspect. You know, it's it's a, a, a good point of entry. And yeah. even if you do just write bad Raymond Carver-esque fiction, you know, it, I think there's something about, you know, you can write about, you know, a trip to the, you know, the local corner shop to buy some a pint of milk or whatever it mm-hmm. might be. And that can still seem full of meaning and significance. Yeah. Yeah. So I started writing kind of these little odd short stories that, were really just, you know, I think kind of initially snapshots. And I mean, this is going to sound incredibly arrogant, but I mean, I, I really hadn't written very much. And I submitted a short story to a competition I'd heard of, which, again, there weren't many 
competitions or anything like that in the UK. And this was run one that was run by Canongate, the publisher in Scotland, and to a, a competition which was about the seven deadly sins. I think that was the the only theme was that you must be writing about one of the seven deadly sins. Hmm. And so I wrote this story called Coveting, and which is about a man who worked in a, a lost and found department of a a railway I think it was like a, a, I think I think it was he worked for the lost and found in the might have been the London this underground sounding or something very like British that. to me so for some yeah reason. <laughs> do you not have lost and found departments? no we do but I don't know just that it was in like a railway station it was a railway like... station I, I really forget it was a long time ago now and anyway this thing was published and in this anthology and which I really took for granted I was like oh cool mm. excellent great and now I look back on it and I'm like bloody hell that was kind yeah. of relatively unusual and right especially out right out of bag, the gate yeah. yeah exactly yeah so I, I then just started submitting stories mm-hmm. to lots of places and ended up I kept getting published at an early stage and I think yeah that kind of it was a slightly warped introduction to I can already writing. tell you're getting really uncomfortable I'm really uncomfortable talking yes, about yourself I know I really don't like I try not to um <laughs> Well, you won, and you won the Fish International story. What's that story about? Where can people find that? I think it's. I think it might be online. It was. Uh, it was published in their anthology. They produce an anthology yeah. every year, and the anthology was called Feathers and Cigarettes and Other Stories. And my story was called Feathers and Cigarettes. And that story was about. I'm still incredibly fond of that story. Actually, it was about a 15 year old girl who basically whose boyfriend breaks up with her and then she goes around to her friend's house steals some money does some coke and then throws a brick through her now ex-boyfriend's window that's it it was kind of written in the first person man is that only in print I think it might be online as well. I think you might be able to find it it. online. Yeah, and it was this sort of very sort of almost train of thought type Mm -hmm. kind of story written in her language and, you know, the way that a a 15-year-old at the time would speak. And uh, I remember they called me up because they couldn't believe a man had written it and they wanted to make sure that it was I was who I said I was. And, yeah, apparently there was some debate as to whether or not I should... I don't know. I can't remember. It was a while ago. But they thought uh, you were actually a 15-year-old girl. I don't know what there. they thought and why they would assume that somebody would want to impersonate a man, a 30-something-year-old man <laughs> or whatever it was at the time. So, but yeah, so that was that was published and and that was the thing that somebody turned into a short film as well. Well, so. it sounds like that although you're uncomfortable talking about yourselves, you're very you're very comfortable in the short story form and I think that's been accidental. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I often, I think, as many writers do, you know, I, I don't like calling myself, I, I guess I call myself a writer, you mm-hmm. know, because it's sort of what I've done all my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's even as a copywriter in advertising, that's what I did. And, you know, so yeah, writer is kind of how I make a living, yeah. as it were. But I still think of there as being a, a jump from being a writer to being an author mm. you know I don't know why and so short because it's a book because it's versus a, a short book story versus a short story yeah I don't know so yeah and and I've never really kind of seen myself as a short story writer mm. even though that's predominantly what I've published yeah and you know and I've published a lot of short stories sort of in various places and you know short stories are great because you know you can get them out of your system mm-hmm. quickly and get them out there and if 
they don't go anywhere. If nobody wants to publish them, then it's not the end of the world. But yeah. I've always been massively intimidated by you know, writing anything longer because, you know, it just seems like such a huge investment of time. And for that, you know, to spend, you know, years of your life writing a novel. And And then potentially not to go somewhere. Yeah. yeah, It just seems tragic to me. And, you know, I I know that, you know, no risk, no reward and everything like that. But yeah, so I've, I've kind of really hesitated to kind of get too involved with anything longer form. I am working on a novel at the moment, but I've said that on so many occasions and, you know, I definitely don't want to talk about that. Fair but enough. <laughs> uh, I'm happy to talk about novels that I've worked on that haven't come about, like failed novels. There yeah. should be a podcast entirely devoted to <gasps> writers talking about That would be a good novels podcast. that they either started and never finished or that they finished and never went anywhere or that they only got into the planning stages of and that stayed with them for a while and I do agree that writers should talk more about rejection we do in this kind of like abstract form like oh got a rejection and like they talk more about like what the editor said in the rejection letter but like right because that's sometimes the only form of validation you get yeah but actually like yeah like real rejection and what that looks like I think like if people were a lot more honest about that I mean everybody's been rejected they are yeah so many times of course I mean I think there's a great analogy which is you know, being a writer and expecting not to get, you know, to be rejected is like being a boxer and expecting not to get hit. Yeah. You know, I, I definitely feel that. But it takes some time to kind of wrap your head around that and not to take it personally. You know, I think that today it's easier than ever to be rejected in mm-hmm. a good way. You know, mm-hmm. like we have things like submittable and, mm-hmm. you know, that just make it easy to fire things off. And, and you can kind of watch this kind of long list of, you know, submissions get yeah. slowly rejected. I'm, and- ve- I'm very involved with like a lot of younger artists because of my training program. And then like I just have such a close connection with Sarah Lawrence. Yeah. Um, like I'm up there all the time. And so I'm constantly meeting like writers who are like newer into the literary scene and like just starting to submit things and like how broken hearted they get after those first couple of rejections. And I'm like, oh, just submit about a hundred more times right? and then come talk to me and see how you feel. Right, like right, it, right. it just becomes routine after a while. You're just like, okay, whatever. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's, I think it's even, I mean, even though it's routine, like, you know, I still feel a sting at times when I kind of submit mm. a story somewhere and I think, oh, they're definitely going to publish it. Yeah. And they definitely don't want to publish it. Yeah. And more than that, it's not even a nice rejection. It's just a form, form rejection. rejection. Oh, God. And I try not to even say that to myself anymore. Like, they're definitely going to want this because that's, like, more than likely that's the place that gives you that form rejection. Form rejection is a shit. I mean, I think that I try not to I, – I know why they exist. You know, I, I've, yeah. I've worked with Submittable on the editor side as well as on the yeah. writer side before. And, you know, having worked with, I worked briefly with uh, Litro, the kind of I was mm-hmm. fiction editor for Litro for a year. And so we use Submittable there. And, you know, we were dealing with huge numbers of submissions. Yeah. And it just became the easiest thing to do was to, you know, do it's hard. batch rejections. And, you know, you had to do it. Yeah. And I, for that reason, I try really hard with Liars League if we have... I try to put at least something in with every rejection that mm-hmm. explains what we liked about the piece or why we're rejecting it. Yeah. Just to give 
the writers a kind of a sense of closure. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I mean it genuinely because I know what it feels like to kind of get this, oh, yeah. this kind of anonymous rejection back from someone anonymous. Yeah. And, but yeah, I mean, I think that there are times with Iris League where it's easier to, to kind of write that, mm-hmm. that rejection letter because, you know, you have genuine criticism and, and, you know, in a good way, you can say like, look, we really love what you were doing yeah. with this character. And, but we just felt that the ending let it down mm-hmm. or, you know, that, you know, it took a strange turn in the third act or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And, but sometimes it's, you know, it, it, it's sometimes it is genuinely hard to find the time to kind of reject a lot of pieces. I mean, for our latest, for our most recent submissions deadline, we had a lot, hundreds of submissions. And that's something that's weird. I, I still, to this day, I don't understand why some themes get a lot of submissions and others don't. Hmm. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the time of year. Yeah. It's really... That was my first question in my head. I was like, I wonder if it's the time of year, but no. No, it's not. And, you know, I I often think maybe it's that simply because like in summer, nobody wants to write because you're out kind of sitting in the sun or lying on the beach or whatever. But but, uh, yeah, no, some themes really seem to resonate and you know intimacy and isolation Mm -hmm. really really did this past month so yeah i was kind of completely overwhelmed you know by all the submissions we had so that might impact on whether or not we're able to kind of yeah offer personal rejections Mm -hmm. i'd love to do it every time and but it just becomes a time it's hard yeah yeah no we definitely feel that with our you know we're we don't really advertise that we are take open for submissions because right. we want them on a rolling basis and we want them to be manageable yeah sure and we're reading novels you know not of course. so but we also want to send out personalized rejections and that's not always possible with everything that you get like yeah. sometimes it's just like you know what this person didn't even take the time to like put their contact information in and mm. you know it's written in eight different fonts so i think it's, it's an okay <laughs> to have a form rejection here right, but sure. for the most part we try to give like something like and what we've heard back from writers is that you know this is the first feedback they've really gotten and they didn't know what wasn't working and like why it wasn't getting picked up they just kept being told no without knowing why. And so, you know, hopefully some of them took that, our feedback positively and went and worked on their stuff and hopefully it makes it better. You know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, it can be incredibly gratifying to people, you know, to again, to kind of mm-hmm. have that sense of something that they can do about a rejection. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, there just isn't, there's just a, a general kind of faith that you have to have in your own writing that at some point. Yeah somebody will want to publish a story but i've definitely had stories that have been consistently rejected and mm-hmm. i still to this day i'm not entirely sure why because yeah. they seem consistent with other things i've written but yeah no it's hard yeah to tell. no well so speaking of writing and everything or would you be willing to read some of your writing for us I'd be happy to read some of my writing <laughs> <laughs> anything to avoid talking about myself fair enough yeah sure i'll read a section from a short story that was published recently in a online magazine called Parhelion and the story's called 20 Acres of Taylor Swift and I'm not going to read from the start of it I'm going to read sort of midway through and I guess what you need to know is that the you're a huge Taylor Swift fan I am actually a huge Taylor All Swift right. fan good to know I, I am an unapologetic Taylor Swift fan yeah which I can go into it great lengths I don't know why it's actually started out as kind of an in-joke I think at one point and then it somehow kind of 
metastasized into That's truth. how my love of Britney you Spears know, started. Of, well, there you go. Yeah. Excellent. Metastasize, is that the right word? Yep. I don't know. Okay, well, say it is. Good, we're equating Taylor Swift, your love for Taylor Swift to a cancer. That's what uh, that's we're terrible. saying. No, that's terrible. No, that's metastasize. No, that's definitely not the word I meant to use then. Oh, God, that's awful. Anyway, okay, yeah, we'll go with that. Yes, so I do love Taylor Swift. Yeah, so uh, what you need to know is that the narrator has stopped for lunch at a, a kind of a big farm. He's on a road trip and he stopped for lunch at a big farm and it's a farm where they have a corn maze and I don't know have you ever been in a corn maze I don't think I've ever actually been in one no so corn mazes are you they're around the country normally mm. in the fall and and it's it is what it sounds like it's just a giant labyrinth cut into a field of corn right. and but they're often done in interesting shapes mm-hmm. you know and uh, sometimes sometimes they're sponsored and often you know to entice people along that they'll be done in some sort of fashionable shape like Mm -hmm. in the shape of harry potter or in the shape of i don't know like spongebob squarepants or whatever it might be and anyway and so this particular story is set this farm he goes to there's a giant corn maze and it's in the shape of taylor swift's head so he's had lunch and he's got some time to kill and he decides to go into the corn maze so that's how the story starts so i'll pick up at that point Outside, there are signs pointing towards the start of the maze, though the cornfield itself is easy enough to find, a ten-foot wall of dusty green stalks that run the entire length of one side of the farmyard and beyond. The entrance is marked by a white gazebo and a Chevy pickup, which, as far as I can tell, is positioned at the base of Taylor Swift's neck. A life-size cutout of Taylor Swift in cocktail dress and high heels is accompanied by a cheerful sign wishing maze walkers good luck, reminding us that there's no drinking, smoking, cussing, or cutting through the corn. Beneath the shade of the gazebo, a man in an orange tabard the color of a pumpkin is selling bottles of water and toffee apples. I buy some water, show my badge, and after a cursory glance at a map of the maze that hangs from one edge of the gazebo, I head into the corn. It's quiet inside. The rows of corn seem to mute the noise from the rest of the farm, so there's only the sound of my footsteps on the hard-baked path and the rustle of leaves in the wind, together with the occasional distant, distant wail of the pumpkin cannon. As it turns out, cutting through the corn would be next to impossible. The stalks are thick and solid, and the rows have been so densely planted you could thrust your arms into the leaves and lose sight of your hands. The corn is so tall that even though the path is wide enough to walk two abreast, in places it feels more like walking through a tunnel. Within ten minutes I'm regretting not buying a map. After half an hour I hate the corn, the farm, Baxter Chevy, and especially Taylor fucking Swift. The worn-out sneakers I'm wearing to wearing aren't up to the distance I'm evidently now obliged to walk. I've finished the water, and since I hadn't thought to wear sunscreen, I can feel the back of my neck beginning to burn. I walked a hedge maze once, but the corn maze is very different. The stretches of path that make up the waves of Taylor's hair or, or the contours of her face are long and entirely featureless, apart from the occasional signpost offering directional clues, though since these rely on a knowledge of Taylor Swift's life and times, they don't help me at all. I start listening out for other voices, hoping to run into someone with a map so at the very least I can orient myself, but all I can hear is the pumpkin siren and the white noise of the corn. 
There had been at most 20 cars parked in the field with me when I arrived, and I'd seen at least a dozen other families or couples in the farmyard while I was there, so I guess there was somewhere between 10 and 20 other people along with me in the maze. Between 10 and 20 people in 20 acres of Taylor Swift. I'm prepared to humiliate myself with a phone call for help, but since the phone, my phone has no reception, that's not an option. From my cursory glance at the map, I remember there's an observation platform somewhere in the middle of Taylor's forehead, but until it comes into view, I have only the vaguest of ideas where I am. I estimate that I've walked at least a mile, maybe two, of Taylor, and I'm at a junction somewhere in the region of her right ear when I turn a lobe and find a girl in a light blue dress kneeling on the ground facing a wall of corn. She's five, I guess, maybe six, though to be honest, I find it hard to tell with kids. Her hands are clasped in prayer, and her head is bowed, her, hair, her blonde hair falling down around her face. I look around, sure that there will be someone else nearby, but there's no one in sight. My first instinct is to turn and walk in the opposite direction, not to disturb her, a baby bird fallen from the nest. But there's also a part of me that's relieved I'm not alone, so I decide to say something. Hello, I say. She looks up, on, up at me, her eyes wide, her hands still pressed together, silent. I can see she's been crying. Are you okay, I say. Are you lost? The girl stands up, her knees dirty from the ground where she'd been kneeling, and nods slowly. I was praying, she says. Okay, I say. Do you know where your mom is? No, she says. I was running and I got lost. I look around again, hoping to see the mother appear along one of the pathways, wild with worry, but there's still no sign that we're anything other than alone. Do you have a map, I say. Do you know where you are? She, sh she, sh she shakes her head. Okay, I say. Do you know which way your mommy went? She shakes, shakes her head again. I'm torn between looking for the girl's mother and risking moving further away from her, or staying put in the hope that someone eventually comes looking. After another glance along the path, I decide to take a chance. What's your name? I ask. Bethany, she says. That's a pretty name, I say, because it's the kind of thing I've heard people saying to small children. Okay, Bethany, should we try and find your mommy? This time she nods. Okay, I say, let's go this way. I decide to walk in the same direction in which I'd been heading, and she follows close behind. My phone is still useless, and I think about shouting out for help, but I don't want to scare Bethany, and besides, I'm still expecting to find her mother any second. But after a few minutes of walking and several twists and turns, I'm regretting my decision to move away from where I'd found her. I think about hacking my way through the corn, though I have no idea in which direction to go, even if I can clear a path, which still looks impossible. And since dragging a five- or six-year-old through with me will probably prove harder than walking the long way round, I abandon the thought. Jesus, I say. I hear Bethany gasp, an exaggerated intake of breath. I turn, and she has stopped behind me, and is actually holding one hand over her open mouth, staring at me, her eyes wide again. You took the Lord's name in vain, she whispers. Oh, I say. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. You need to ask for forgiveness, she says and I can see from the look on her face that she's genuinely concerned. Uh, well, I say, forgive me. No, she says, you gotta ask Jesus. Okay, 
I say, and I turn my face to the sky. Sorry, Jesus. Sorry. She nods, satisfied. We walk on for a while longer, on shorter paths, following what I'm hoping are the inner lines of Taylor's face, until we come to a large, oval clearing. I guess that we're standing in one of her eyes, but it's a dead end. I walk to where Taylor's pupil would be if I can... If I, I walk to where Taylor's pupil would be to see if I can see anything with the additional clearance the cornea affords, but the corn is still too high. We'll try another way, I say, and then, in case Bethany's having doubts, I add, this is fun, right? Do you like mazes? No, Bethany says. Yeah, I say, me neither. I'll stop there. <laughs> My favorite phrase in that was, I turn a lobe. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of fun to be had from um, describing the kind of like anatomy of Ta- Taylor. well, Taylor specifically Taylor Swift's head <laughs> as you're walking through it. Yeah, oh, that was a really fun story. Thank you. I'm gonna I gotta read the rest now. I have it pulled up actually when I was doing my research hmm. on you and poking through all your things. I found that story and I was like, oh, I'm excited. You decided to read part of that. Oh, Thank you. You're very welcome. Well, you may be uncomfortable talking about yourself, but you have a very lovely podcast and reading voice. So, Oh, thanks very much. I very much enjoyed. That was like a bedtime story for me. I rarely read anything at Liars League, I have to say. Once, I think I've done it once. I've actually read somebody else's story when one of our actors dropped out and the story itself called for an English accent. Oh, and so talking. I stepped in. But yeah, again, I wasn't massively comfortable doing it. So. It's funny. I know a lot of curators who feel that way too. I also do very few readings anymore because I'm just like, we... I host one monthly. I don't need to read my own work. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like reading my own work. I don't know why. Uh, I don't mind that. It's reading other people's, I think, can mm. sometimes be. But um, yeah, and I, I don't mind hosting it. I enjoy that. But yeah. it's I know, something about certainly talking about myself. But yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on tonight. It's You're very welcome. It's I'm been a pleasure. Happy that we finally got to sit down and have like conversation and this time together yeah it's been delightful thank you for having me thanks for being the first guest of 2020 for us too so i'm super excited about 2020 yeah (laughs) what's your resolution that's a really good question i think i'm gonna kind of try and get back to an earlier resolution from last year which is not to bring my phone into the bedroom with me oh yeah that's a hard one yeah it's quite difficult if you can manage it but i think it's good it's a good it's an achievable resolution that's my alarm so yeah, I've actually bought an alarm clock. Because, yeah, for that reason. Yeah, for that reason. Yeah, I kind of crumbled at some point and got back into the habit of having my phone in the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to try and push that away again. Fair enough. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 45th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with me, your host, Katie Rainey, and featuring Andrew Lloyd-Jones. Our transcripts for our deaf and hard-of-hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals.
click word Yes sir, it's the burn Bombing on yelling, getting gully as the fern I don't know much about